our uh, internet ministry, which <laughs> we had difficulties this morning. Yeah, I think we need to be uh, uh, asking the Lord and petitioning the Lord for some more funds to do some upgrades here. So we don't run into these problems. But uh, uh, the internet ministry not only is for broadcasting our, our worship services, but it's also uh, you know the websites and handing out, uh, uh, mailing out uh, uh, literature, uh, Bible studies, books, and those things. So uh, as you return a faithful and honest tithe, remember uh, offerings as well. And uh, uh, you know, whatever the Holy Spirit will dictate upon your heart. And uh, we do have a link at the top of the room uh, that you can uh, uh, send tithes and offerings through uh, uh, through that avenue, through the internet as well. And so, uh, before we get started here, I invite you to kneel with me. Let's have a word of prayer together, and we can get into uh, get into this study. So, please kneel with me if you can. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you so much for uh, this opportunity that we have to uh, come together and worship thee. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to abide with us as you've promised. And Lord, not because we're worthy. We're so far from worthy. Uh, it's, uh, it's just amazing. And that's why it's a miracle that, uh, that you can change our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you attend uh, our gatherings here on this Holy Sabbath day, that you send angels to to come into this place and uh, that we may gain a taste of heaven, uh, Lord, and, and a rest, a rest from our battle with uh, Satan and temptation and, and the cares of this world. And Father, I pray that you uh, will be with those on our prayer lists. We praise you for your travel mercies. We praise you for uh, being with us in times of grief and, uh, and Lord, for healing us. Uh, we praise you for uh, your protective care and for providing for all our necessities. Uh, Lord, we praise your holy name. We thank you so much for Jesus. We praise you that you loved us so much, and that Jesus loves us so much, uh, that uh, you would make such a supreme sacrifice so that we may have the opportunity for eternal life, to be brought back into the family again. And uh, Lord, we pray that you forgive us our sins that nailed Jesus to that cross that we may live unto Thee for the rest of our lives and for our eternity. I pray, Lord, that uh, You will be with those who, again, are on our prayer list, those uh, that we love very much. Jerry, she, her mother passed away. The family's still grieving. And, and we know and have had experience in such things that there are uh, estate things that must be settled. And, and uh, uh, Jerry is in a situation where the house that... Her mother owns, she lives in, and uh, the family wants to sell it. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that you will bless, uh, bless Jerry in, in either uh, living there or moving to a new place, whatever it may be, as long as it's your will. Uh, be with Bart, uh, who was brought to our attention. Uh, help him to heal. And uh, be with Bob as well as he's in school. And, and, and may Jerry be a, a shining light uh, to him in the truth of the gospel. Uh, we pray also for Dusty Rose's husband, Wayne, Lord, who has cancer. Uh, we pray specifically that you'll be very near to him and uh, heal him according to thy will. Be with the, those who attend to him. And uh, we know that our time here on earth is short. 
but we have hope of eternal life. And so, Lord, please be with, uh, be with uh, Wayne and, and all of us that we may be found worthy when Jesus returns. And Lord, this is an incredible subject to, to speak about. There are a lot of truths here, some very hard truths for many. Uh, Lord, so I pray that hearts will be softened, that all of us here will be attuned to your Spirit. Give me of the, uh, the Spirit to, to teach and uh, to bring uh, the, the message that you wish conveyed, and uh, that we will grow to love the truth and accept it and make whatever changes uh, are required to bring glory to thy name. Thank you so much again for the Sabbath day and for hearing this prayer, for I've asked it in the name of Jesus who is worthy. Amen. As I said in my prayer, this can be a hard topic uh, for many. <clears throat> and when you're dealing with certain traditions that people were raised with, uh, certain understandings that they may have and, and is exposed or possibly exposed to be uh, either against God or not of the truth or whatever it may be. Uh, it's very difficult for, for us who have those traditions, uh, but it's not impossible to overcome them. And that's what I want to encourage you with. Um, that, <clears throat> that we always be in... Uh, in study of the truth, for the Bible tells us that the truth is Jesus. And if we come to love Jesus, we come to love the truth, and as we love Him more and more, we'll love the truth more and more. Because plainly, friends, this world is not our home, is it? There are many things that are done on this world that will not be in heaven. That is a fact. And Jesus is laying out what heaven is like to us. We find it in His Word. And that's where I want to go to. In the 11th chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks about another Jesus. He speaks about another spirit and thus another gospel from the one taught by the apostles. He is greatly concerned uh, that the followers of Jesus continue in what he says is the simplicity of Christ. We read it in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. He says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. That's not a wicked jealousy. That's a loving, earnest jealousy. Okay? For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But he says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Simplicity that is in Christ. You know, Jesus basically said this very same thing in essence, how simple the gospel is. We are to have the faith of a child, isn't that what he said? Children can understand the true gospel. The simplicity of Christ. And many times we make salvation... Sad to say, more difficult than it really is. God's instructions, let's think back. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. God's instructions to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were simple. Weren't they very simple? He didn't come up with a you know, 40 or 50 page manual, did he? 
on instructions on how to live in the Garden of Eden. His instructions were very simple. He left no doubt as to what he required of them and and what would happen if they disobeyed. God gave them one clear reason, one very clear reason for not eating the forbidden fruit. But you know what Satan did? Satan offered several plausible reasons in favor of doing so. And that's the way he works. How simple is God's definition and interpretation of sin? How simple? How simple is the invitation to come to Christ? How simple? How clear is the way of truth and righteousness? And how devious the way of darkness and error? Friends, Paul warned of a different Christ, a different spirit, and different gospel. And in our day, I think you'll agree, friends, there is all the difference in the world between the Christ of Paul and the Gospels and the Christ of modern Christians. Today, as in his day, there are so many teachers and proponents of the traditions of men that there is indeed a false gospel proclaimed. A gospel that at its source we find a false Christ and a false spirit we find an Antichrist. Our scripture reading for today, Matthew 24, verses 24 and 25, Jesus warned, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. He said, Behold, I have told you before. The implication is that these signs could be almost, but not entirely, convincing to the very elect. These faithful ones have obeyed the counsel of the true witness, haven't they? The true witness to the Laodiceans. That counsel was to anoint their eyes with eye salve. You remember reading in Revelation 3? And so they are able to distinguish between the true and the false Jesus. The false gospel with its signs, wonders, and traditions of men are exposed by the true witness. And the faithful reject them as from Antichrist. Now how is that possible? How are they able to discern the false from the true? Would it be safe for me to say that true Christians believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? You see, there are many people who read the Bible, but they don't have their eyes anointed with ISAF. You ever wonder why there are so many different Christian denominations? Because we have a lot of Bible readers in the world, friends, but there aren't a lot of Christians who have had their eyes anointed. I believe that true Christians believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And we're familiar with, excuse me, and we are familiar with, I think, 2 Peter 1, verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 
And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called Christians. And we are to study the words of God as found in the Bible, the book of Christ. And we're to put the principles found within its pages into practice in our life. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, what's it say? Perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. One of the problems that we have as Christians, though, is how we study the Word of God and come to the conclusion of what is truth and what is error. And this is something uh, that I just want to briefly touch on so that we begin on the right playing field here in our study. You know, many of our uh, uh, theological differences would disappear if we would use correct principles of study that we find in God's Word. You see, the way in which we study has a lot to do uh, with what conclusions we finally arrive at, doesn't it? Basically, we have three main sources of information uh, concerning spiritual matters. First, we have the Bible, God's Word. The second, we have the spirit of prophecy that God has blessed us with. And third, the writings of, uh, of what I call uninspired authors, such as Bible commentaries and and uh, ministers and editors and historians and so on. But a great problem that many Christians have is that they believe the ideas of uninspired men and then they move to the inspired writings to substantiate their belief. You see, when someone begins with human ideas and then tries to find them in inspired writings, well, then error is usually not too far behind and there arises then a false gospel. God's Word is to be our foundation, isn't it? For any belief, any belief that we hold dear. Our safe course always is to prayerfully study the Word of God first and foremost. Let it be its own explainer. Take it as it reads, friends. That's what that lower criticism is. And then we can use the spirit of prophecy and then Bible commentaries and historians and preachers and so on. Bible is to be first. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Is that what he said? That's where we start. The word of God is to be the final word too on any subject. No matter how closely we may be tied to it or not. I'm going to be speaking about what most Christians consider a holy day. I'll be speaking about Easter. Excuse me. And this can be a very emotional subject uh, for people because we humans are steeped in traditions. And not all tradition is bad. And not all is good either. Tradition is only bad, really, if it is in contradiction to the will of God. Or it takes the place of God on the throne of your heart. Or it it leads others into error and the loss of their soul. That would not be good, would it? Paul warns us in Colossians 2 verse 8. He says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. 
after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Ultimately, we each must be able to personally give an answer for what we believe. If what we believe, including the traditions we keep, cannot be uh, substantiated and upheld by the Bible, then what are we to do as Christians? Well, it has to be discarded if we want to live eternally with the Lord. Can we agree on that? I mentioned before, this study may cut close to home for, for many. But let's remember that we are in search for what Jesus wants for us. And, and friends, we find that in the Bible, don't we? And you can never go wrong doing what Jesus wants you to do. you believe that? And to find what Jesus wants you to do, you have to search the Bible. <laughs> so let's study the Bible using right principles. And, and hopefully and prayerfully any confusion that may exist will be peeled away from our lives. And, and that is if we're willing to peel them away. And I pray that each one of us, including myself, is willing to do that. Now, I'm going to do four things primarily in this study. A study that I've entitled The Easter Deception. First, I'm going to give the source of this, this day, where it originated. <clears throat> Second, I'm going to share how this, this day came into Christianity. Third, I'm going to see what God's Word says about this day, if anything. It's Easter. The fourth, I'm going to answer some general questions that arise. Uh, always arise whenever this is presented and looked at. And then fifth, I'm going to come to a conclusion. Now, I will tell you that this study is not exhaustive. I leave that up to you. But I will hit the highlights, I think, of this subject. So I want to begin with the likely source of this day, this, this holiday, holy day. You know, in studying history, you'll find that when man began to worship the sun, it laid the foundation. It truly did. It laid the foundation for many holidays that are prevalent in the world and in the church today, in the professed church. Throughout history, the practice and the horrors of sun worship have reached every region of the world. And I say horrors... Uh, because children were often sacrificed to appease such false gods. The Babylonians called the sun god Shamash. The Egyptians, Ra. The Assyrians, Baal. Have you ever heard that? The Canaanites, Moloch. Have you ever heard of Moloch? The Persians, Mithra. Have you ever heard of Mithra? The Greeks, Helios. The Druids, Lu. And the Romans, Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun. Different names for the same false god. And the list continues down through history and encompasses cultures as diverse as, as the Hindus, the Japanese, the Aztecs, come close to home as well for us here in the United States as virtually every Indian tribe in the U.S. had some variation of sun worship. <coughs> the beginnings of sun worship can be traced back to Babel of Babylon. A man named Nimrod founded Babylon not too long after the worldwide flood of Noah's day. It was Earth's 
First, Metropolis. You know, God's counsel over and over is to get out of the cities. Have you come to that conclusion? His counsel over and over is to get out of the cities and into the country. And that's what Shem and his line did after the flood. They went out into the mountains, into the country. But the other lines, they came in, settled into big cities, into metropolises that won here in Babylon that was built by Nimrod. All the population, I mean, think about this, all the population were descendants of Noah at this time. But two-thirds had strayed away <clears throat> from God. <coughs> I don't know why I'm having such a difficulty here. Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah. But he didn't worship the Creator God. He was leading the people of Babel and building a tower upward to heaven as security against another flood if it were to come. As well as being able to see into the heavens determining what had caused the flood, that first flood. You see, many at that time, they didn't believe that the worldwide flood had been brought by God. They believed that it was some cataclysmic event of nature. Even though Noah had preached around the world, that message had gone around the world, Noah preached it for 120 years. But there were also those who not only believed that the flood was brought by God, but hated God for doing it, and they were rebelling against Him. But we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 10. This is where we first find <clears throat> Nimrod. <clears throat> Genesis 10 verse 8, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then Eric and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar. <clears throat> so at first, Nimrod had been only a hunter. But in the passing of time, his escapades, if you want to call it that, became the stuff of legend. And he gained many followers. And by the way, the name Nimrod comes from the Hebrew word Merod, which means rebellion, or he rebelled. That's what his name means. In an Aramaic translation called the Targum, we read this for Genesis 10, for these scriptures, it says, Nimrod became a mighty man of sin, a murderer of innocent men, and a rebel before the Lord. Kind of helps out, doesn't it? The Jerusalem Targum says this. says, He was mighty in hunting or in prey and in sin before God. For he was a hunter of the children of men in their languages. And he said unto them, Depart from the religion of Shem and cleave to the institutes of Nimrod. It's clear that Nimrod was in rebellion against God. I mean, why else build a, a tower to the heavens? Right? What usually happens with someone like this? Well, eventually they become a, a tyrant, and that's what Nimrod did. 
He became a tyrant, and the people were charged not only to honor him as their king, but also to worship him as their god. The historian Josephus says this about Nimrod. He says, He gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence on His power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Nimrod's arrogance was ultimately surpassed only by that of his wife, whose name was Semiramis. Have you ever heard of Semiramis? She was notoriously beautiful, legend says, and very cunning. Like Nimrod, the people also deified his wife, Semiramis. Nimrod and Semiramis were eventually exalted as the actual sun and moon in human form. Now, historical accounts of Nimrod's actual death are vague. I mean, some say that upon threat that her infidelity would be made public, that Semiramis poisoned Nimrod. Thus, she was able to rule the kingdom alone. Some say that a wild beast killed him while he was hunting. And some say that Shem killed him because he led the people to worship Baal. We don't actually know how Nimrod died, but what is certain, and you can take this to the bank, is that he did die. <laughs> and he left Semiramis with a large dominion as well as a dilemma. How was she to maintain her hold on the empire that he had built? Well, with the help of Satan, she came up with a most devious and deceitful solution. She claimed that Nimrod's spirit had ascended into the sun itself. She described to the people his new and elevated role as their benefactor, and their protector. You see, each morning he would rise, bringing light and life to the land as he traveled across the sky. In the evening, he would plunge below the edge of the earth. Remember, they didn't believe the earth was round. There was an edge. <laughs> Flip side, I guess. You go to the nether regions. And he would go there, to battle the subterranean evil spirits and demons that would otherwise annihilate mankind. The friends, you know, the young people, and you watch these movies and you see these, you know, Lord of the Rings and they talk about the underworld and all this stuff. It comes from pagan theology. <laughs> You'll call it theology. Pagan beliefs. And this is what they believe, these superstitions. And she would say, at times the battle would be bloody. And the red-streaked sky bore witness to that effect. But he was always the victor in these battles. For each day, the sun arose. He wasn't defeated. And from then on, yes, 
From then on, the people were to lay their offerings before the rising sun each morning and worship it as their departed leader and victorious protector. <coughs> and her plan, Semiramis, her plan was incredibly successful. Because they did not obey and worship the living God, though, you see. Nimrod's followers had forfeited their only link with spiritual truth, and they were thus so easily deceived by Semiramis. You see, the Bible tells us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It means the Holy Spirit brings that truth to our minds, our heart. And so these people, left with nothing but their physical senses to inform them, they readily accepted this fable that was given by Semiramis. And unbeknownst to them, they had become pawns, you see, in the plan of Satan. As he laid the common foundation for the heresy of paganism. Sun worship. It is the foundation of paganism. And all the other heresies that come from that. And for centuries, Satan has built upon that foundation. Layer after layer of traditions and holy days that we still find in the world and professed churches of today. Now, some may say, well, paganism, what is paganism? So before we go on, let's define what paganism is. Webster's Dictionary gives us this definition. Paganism is the worship of false gods or the system of religious opinions and worships maintained by pagans. False gods meaning not the Creator God. A pagan is someone who worships false gods and not the true Creator God. It's a very simple definition, isn't it? Sometimes the terms heathen and Gentile are used in the Bible to mean the same thing as pagan. An idolater, think about this. An idolater is practicing paganism. Isn't that right? If paganism is the worship of false gods, isn't that what an idolater is? Someone who worships idols or false gods? So an idolater is practicing paganism, the worship of a false god. So, as the people accepted the story of Semiramis, it was decided that the first day of the week would thenceforth be dedicated to the worship of the sun god. Remember Nimrod? He's a sun god. And it would be called Sun Day. That's their holy day. And in like manner, the rest of the weekdays would be dedicated to the worship, the worship of lesser heavenly bodies, lesser false gods. Our own weekdays today retain the names of these false gods. Do you know that? Have you ever thought, why is the first day... Well, we understand why the first day of the week is called Sunday, don't we? What about Monday? Have you ever wondered, why is it called Monday? Well, it commemorates the moon. Monday. Tuesday, the planet Mars, which they called Two. T-I-U. Wednesday, Mercury. His name was Woden. Wednesday, Woden. Thursday, Jupiter, Thor, Thursday. Friday, Venus, Freya, Friday. 
And Saturday is obviously named for what? Saturn. Very good. And as generations passed, the pagan religious leaders added more and more doctrines and ceremonies to sun worship. And one such ritual was that of human sacrifice. They said that the sun required life in order to, to strengthen it in its journey across the sky. So they began sacrificing men and they sacrificed women and children by fire to the sun god. But mostly children were killed. I'll read to you something. This is from the Encyclopedia Mythica. It was an article entitled Moloch. Remember we found that uh, Moloch was what the Canaanites referred to as the sun god. It says Moloch was represented as a huge bronze statue with the head of a bull. The statue was hollow and inside there burned a fire which colored the Moloch a glowing red. Children were placed on the hands of the statue and through an ingenious system the hands were raised to the mouth as if Moloch were eating and the children fell into the fire where they were consumed by the flames. The people gathered before the Moloch the people gathered before the Moloch were dancing on the sounds of flutes and tambourines to drown out the screams of the victims. That's what it says in this encyclopedia. Do you know what the Bible says? Of such worship God declared through Moses, it's found in Deuteronomy 12.31. He says, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods, for even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. One spring, not many years following Nimrod's death, Semiramis was found to be with child. She was pregnant. Calling the scribes of Babylon together, she issued a most remarkable press release. Nimrod had impregnated her, she claimed, through the rays of the sun. A miracle for sure. As the offspring of the sun god, the child would lay claim to deity. And by proxy, Semiramis would henceforth be the mother of God. Have you ever heard this expression before? The mother of God? Some refer to the Virgin Mary as the mother of God. Do you think this is just coincidence, friends? I'll tell you, though, that Mary is not the mother of God. The Creator God has no mother. Or father, for that matter. The Virgin Mary is the mother of the human Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't that true? Now, would anyone care to guess when this child of the sun god named Tammuz, that was his name, Tammuz, when he was born, any ideas? December 25th. Interesting day, isn't it? On December 25th, Tammuz was born and his birth was hailed by the people as a great miracle. Falling as it did during the slowly lengthening days immediately after the winter solstice, it was also seen as an omen 
of the son's rebirth and was celebrated with great rejoicing. December 25th was thereafter observed as the birthday of the son of the sun god and became a yearly feast day throughout the kingdom. And this is the same day that what's celebrated? Christ Mass, Christmas. I could go on and on about that day as well. But you see how through the, the, the worship of the sun as a false god, it laid the foundation through time of all these heresies, all these, quote, holy days. I'll ask you, here Tammuz was born on December 25th and is celebrated as Christmas. Do you think this is just a coincidence? It is said that Tammuz eventually had a mythical union with Ishtar. Now Ishtar was the mother goddess who embodied all the reproductive energies of nature. You know, today and I, when I was growing up they used to have commercials. What was it? It was... Uh, wasn't it some butter commercial that said, don't fool with Mother Nature? You heard that? Mother Nature. When somebody says Mother Nature, whether they realize it or not, they're talking about Ishtar. They're talking about a false god. She was also variously regarded as the moon goddess. And also, here's the expression, Queen of Heaven. Ishtar became the principal female deity of the Assyrians. By the way, have you ever heard the term Queen of Heaven? You ne Really? You haven't heard the expression the Queen of Heaven? Pope John Paul II used it in describing the Virgin Mary. Virgin Mary. Do you think that's just a coincidence? The same goddess, Ishtar with certain variations, can be identified in other cultures. The uh, Phoenicians called her Ashtoreth. The Greeks and Romans called her Astart. Uh, Istra, to the Teutonic or German people. Uh, Estra, to the Saxons. Her counterpart in Egypt was called Isis. Have you ever heard Isis? There used to be a Sunday morning cartoon-type show, wasn't it? The, the Eye of Isis or something like that, when I was growing up. Isis was the wife and sister of Osiris and the mother of Horus. These are all false gods. Rabbits and eggs were both symbols of life that came to be identified with Ishtar because she was the, the, the uh, mother goddess. She was in charge of the reproductive energies of nature, see? Fertility, yes. Kids, I always wondered, what does... Jesus have to do with Easter eggs and bunnies and chickens and haven't you ever thought about that? This is where it comes from. <clears throat> the yearly celebration honoring her, honoring Ishtar took place around the first full moon after the spring equinox when all of nature seemed to be bursting with reproductive vitality, see? Springtime. 
See? It said that Tammuz, remember, he was the son of the sun god Nimrod. It said that he met an untimely death at the tusk of a wild boar. Some accounts say that after three days, Tammuz miraculously resurrected himself. Others say that the grief-stricken Ishtar journeyed far into the netherworld to find him. Isn't it interesting? Three days he resurrected himself? Do you think these are just coincidences? Or Satan trying to deceive? After many days of her, Ishtar, journeying into the netherworld to find Tammuz, she succeeded. But during her absence, while she was in the netherworld, up here on earth, this is how it goes, her absence was felt. The passion of love ceased to operate and all of life on earth languished in mourning. By all accounts, when the lamenting was over, Tammuz was firmly ensconced as the new god of the sun and his renown eventually exceeded even his father Nimrod. And every year, friends, every year, Following Tammuz's tragic death and presumed ascension to the sun, the 40 days preceding Ishtar's festival were set aside for fasting and self-affliction to commemorate his suffering and death. This time of repentance was called weeping for Tammuz. Now at the end of this period of mourning, the people would awaken early on the first day of the week, Sunday, and travel to the highest hills near their homes. There they would present their offerings of wine and meat and incense and prostrate themselves before the rising sun, exclaiming, Our Lord is risen! And then would commence the festivities of Ishtar, Queen of Heaven and Goddess of Fertility. Beloved, I'll tell you, this is called Easter sunrise services today. Do you think this is just a coincidence? In preparation for this high celebration, the people would make small cakes, sometimes inscribing them with a figure of the goddess and sometimes a tea for Tammuz. They would bake these cakes in the sun and they'd eat them as part of their ritual. Have you ever heard of a hot cross bun? Yes. Is this just a coincidence? Friends. By the way, many ancient cultures crucified humans on a cross T as a sacrifice to the sun god Tammuz. How did these pagan celebrations evolve into Christian holidays such as Easter? How did that happen? Because you see, the early Christians during the time of the apostles and just after, they had denied all compromise with false doctrine. They had gladly suffered horrible martyrdoms for refusing even to place a pinch of incense at the feet of pagan altars. But a change was gradually creeping into the church. And the Apostle Paul tells us about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 3 he said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, speaking of the second coming of Jesus, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. 
who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul said that there would be a falling away in the church, so that the man of sin would be revealed. And in his address to the, the elders of the Ephesian church some years later, Paul predicted that the apostasy, the apostasy excuse me, would be due to men within the church rising to draw away disciples after them. That's in Acts 20. He warned Timothy of similar dangers, adding that a time was coming when men would turn to fables, closing their ears to the truth. And beloved, that's exactly what happened. There soon set in a life and death struggle, you see, between sun worship and Christianity. And since apostasy was, all, apostasy was already rife in the Christian church, it was only a short step further to her leaders to agree upon a compromise. Many of these leaders had themselves come into the church as converts from sun worship and still had a form of veneration for the sun and those institutions held sacred to it. It was therefore agreed by them that in order to facilitate the conversion of the heathen, how are we going to convert the heathen? We've got to come up with some evangelistic ideas. How are we going to do it? How are we going to advance the cause of Christ over that of sun worship? Well, this is how. We're going to incorporate many of the teachings and the institutions of sun worship into the church. And among these were the observance of Sunday, the celebration of the Nativity, Lent, Easter celebrations, among other less notable celebrations. Christmas. From the book, The Great Empires of Prophecy, page 377 by A.T. Jones. No sooner were the apostles removed from the stage of action no sooner was their watchful attentions gone and their apostolic authority removed than this very thing appeared of which the apostle had spoken. Certain bishops, in order to make easier the conversion of the heathen, to multiply disciples, and by this increase their influence and authority, began to adopt heathen customs and forms. Christians began to meet at the rising of the sun. And you believe it. Do Christians today meet at any time at the rising of the sun for worship? Tomorrow morning, beloved, there are going to be thousands and thousands of Christians that do that very thing. The Christians began at this time to meet at the rising of the sun. And they'd say, this is the time when Christ was resurrected. And we will teach the people that we, we meet at the rising of the sun, not to worship the sun, but to worship the one who was raised at sunrise. Amazing. To such an extent were the forms of sun worship practiced in this apostasy that before the, the close of the second century, friends, the heathens themselves actually accused these so-called Christians with worshiping the sun. The same thing could be said today in regard to many of these holidays. And because of this 
continual falling away by the church, it became difficult to distinguish between paganism and this kind of Christianity as early as the 3rd century. In fact, that which was known as paganism was so far different from the original paganism of Rome that it was referred to by historians as the new paganism. And this new paganism so closely resembled the apostate form of Christianity that it really differed just in name only. Now I'll tell you, this did not happen overnight, my friends. It took a couple hundred years to get to this point. I want you to remember, truth is, is a progressive thing. As you accept truth, God gives you more truth, and you progress closer and closer to the Lord. But I want you to consider also that error can be progressive, and in this case, it has been. During the time of Constantine in the early 4th century, this new paganism and the apostate, paganized, sun-worshipping form of Christianity merged. And a new imperial, quote, universal religion was created. And that was Satan's aim all along, to have his one universal religion rule the world. And what was that religion? Back to the Great Empires of Prophecy, page 395, this book by A.T. Jones. He says, quote, The epic thus formed was the epic of the papacy, and the new religion thus created was the papal religion. And friends, in her thirst for even greater power and domination, papal Rome absorbed all other religion in, uh, religions into herself. I mean... She is referred to as the, quote, Mother Church for a reason. Not only did they absorb all other religions, they adulterated the pure doctrine of Christ with an amalgam of superstitions and heresies. The list of deities, friends, you find in the Catholic faith is enormous. There were gods who presided over every moment of a person's life. Gods of the home and garden, of food and drink, and of health and sickness. To disguise their pagan origin and make it more acceptable to the Christian members, the Roman Catholic Church renamed these false gods after church saints. Prayers for the dead, instead of ascending to Sybil, were now offered up to the Virgin Mary. The use of idols and amulets was preserved, as were offerings of penance and indulgences. And not much of this has changed to this very day, beloved. These beliefs originate from heathenism and paganism. Scripture does not substantiate these things, as we'll see. <coughs> Such rituals were not only preserved by them, but still have great spiritual importance within the Catholic Church today. Even <coughs> the lesser pagan holy days were absorbed into the Church of Rome and passed on as Christian. For example... During autumn, when all nature seems to be decaying, spirits of the dead were believed to be hovering nearby. If they were not prayed for and, and provided with adequate food and shelter, the people feared they would remain and haunt them with misfortune. In other words, what would this be called? Trick or treat. You see, today we're left with All Saints Day. The evening before is called All Hallows' Eve, or more commonly, as Deb just said, Halloween. 
pagan. St. Valentine's Day, uh uh-oh. Where did that come from? Mardi Gras, uh uh-oh, there's another lesser-known one. Both of those are what remain of Lupercalia. Romans celebrated Lupercalia on February 15th. Americans celebrated on February 14th. The festival was officially dedicated to the god Faunus. Now, you probably don't recognize the name Faunus, but he's known by his Greek name Pan. Have you ever heard of Peter Pan? He was the god that ruled fertility. Pan was also considered a god of music, playing upon the reed pipes he made. He was seen, uh, it was said that, uh, that this music could inspire panic. Pan is the root of the word panic, isn't it? But it would inspire panic to anyone who would hear it. Rock music can do that, and variations of it. Pan was famous for being lustful. The promiscuous Greek women were known as Pan girls. But the night before the Lupercalia festival, the names of all the girls were written on on slips. The slips were then placed in a jar, and a boy would randomly select the name of a girl. And those two were allowed to be together during the festival and throughout the entire year. Not married, friends. (laughs) Together. Together. Cupid was the god of love to the Romans. They believed that he shot arrows into the hearts of unsuspecting victims that forced them to fall in love. During the Lupercalia festival, the Luperci, who were the priests devoted to Faunus, or Pan, would sacrifice two goats and a dog. After the feast, the priests would run around Palatine Hill, that's one of the seven hills of Rome, with a piece of bloody skin cut from the sacrificed animals, and they would hit any woman that they could. And you'll say, well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, that's a tradition that is honored when people throw beads at women during the Mardi Gras parade. Being struck with the skin of the sacrificed animal was supposed to ensure fertility and safe child delivery through the next year. Roman women saw it as a blessing. The women would sometimes flash their breasts, a symbol of fertility. You see it in some archaeological finds of these old idols. You'll see this. So they'd flash their breasts at the priests to get their attention so the bloody skin could strike them. And this was done, friends, just prior to the time of mourning for Tammuz, which the church incorporated as Lent what they call it. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Church of Rome says in Catholic Encyclopedia. Lent is the period of six and a half weeks from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. During Lent for 40 days, excluding Sundays, fasting is recommended for all Catholics according to the laws of fast. This is reminiscent of the 40 days of our Lord's unbroken fast. The entire period of Lent is also a time of spiritual preparation for the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. Ash Wednesday was established as the first day of Lent by Pope St. Gregory the Great. It's actually the period of time for the weeping for Tammuz. 
because you see the Catholic fact book says this. It was once claimed that the Lenten practice was of apostolic origin, but historians fix its establishment at a later date, probably the 5th century. According to the Roman Catholic Church, Lent is derived from the 40 days Jesus spent fasting in the wilderness, but it is admitted that the observance of Lent was unknown to the disciples, and it did not find its way into the church until several centuries after the time of Christ. Well, friends, that's telling, isn't it? Is it just a coincidence that it lines up perfectly with the pagan ritual of weeping for Tammuz? History says no, beloved. Immediately following the time of mourning for Tammuz is the celebration of Ishtar or Easter, the fertility goddess and the queen of heaven. The Church of Rome incorporated this too as a holy day and never even bothered to change the name. <laughs> Just how did this happen? Well, again, early Christians, being mostly Jews, you could say, coming from, from uh, Israel, continued to remember the Passover in honor of the death of Christ. Now, they didn't practice the Passover, beloved, but they remembered the the holy day, what it represented. And accordingly, the celebration was always on the Passover day, the 14th of the first month in the Jewish calendar. Rome, however, and from her the entire West, adopted the day of the sun as the day of this celebration. <clears throat> According to the Eastern custom, the celebration would fall on a different day of the week every year. The rule of Rome was that the celebration must be on the Sunday following the 14th day of the, the Passover moon, the Paschal moon. From uh, Ruth Reichman, let me read you this. She was an associate professor at the Max K. German American Center at IUPUI in, uh, University in Indianapolis. She says the church, Roman Catholic, placed the Easter celebration on the Sunday following the vernal equinox. And one reason that they did this was not only to be as much like the heathen as they could in an effort to evangelize them, but also to be as unlike the Jews as possible, unlike the true followers of Christ as possible. The apostate church and pagans both hated the Jews for a number of reasons. I'm talking about the Jewish Christians. Did you, did you know that... Constantine actually made it against the law for a Christian to convert to Judaism? Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? But the real reason is the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. The Sabbath being in conflict with Sunday was a factor in that hatred and in his decision. The Sabbath detracted from the supposed holiness of Sunday worship, and Constantine wanted his religion to be universal. Having the Passover remembrance on Sunday would also facilitate the conversion, quote, of the heathen by conforming to their customs and pander uh, to their spirit of contempt and hatred of the Jews. So Constantine, you see, he was determined that the bishop of Rome be primal in all things ecclesiastical, and this was a step toward that goal. 
the celebration of Passover, had at one time been unlawful and celebrated in secret because of persecution. But Constantine changed all of that upon his supposed conversion and cooperation with the papal church. And over time, the celebration of Easter took the place of remembering the Passover, and nothing has changed to this day. The celebration of the false god Ishtar and what the church embraces today is not a coincidence. Now, I realize, and believe me, I do, that some of you may have never known any of this before now. It may be very unsettling for you to learn that virtually every religious holiday now observed throughout Christendom originated in paganism many hundreds of years before Jesus. Sunday worship became the Lord's Day. The birthday of the son's child named Tammuz became the alleged birthday of the Christ child called Christmas today. Many of these other, maybe lesser, holidays, like Easter, which they never even changed the name of to try to conceal, became known as the Resurrection Day of Jesus from the tomb. Is this a coincidence, friends? Is this a coincidence? How? Did this come into the church? Through a series of compromises. Through years and years and years and years. And we find it in the church today. Well, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does the Bible have to say about Easter? Well, we're going to get to that in part two. We're going to get to that in part two of the Easter deception. Because the Bible does have some things to say about it. We're going to find out exactly what that is. And uh, friends, we're going to gather back together here at, uh, oh, I said two o'clock. might be just a little bit afterwards because we had some technical problems. But uh, uh, we're going to go with part two around two o'clock. For those joining us over Pow Talk, we're going to leave the room open. We're going to... Uh, uh, play some music and such, and and uh, you can have your lunch break and whatever, and I invite you to come back for part two of the Easter deception. And before we uh, close out our divine worship service, let's have a word of prayer together here. I invite you to bow your heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your word for us who live in our time, so that we may not be deceived by the devil that we can learn principles of truth and compare them to the things and traditions that we hold and, and see, is this appropriate? Is this something that, that you would approve of? Is this something that brings glory to you? Or is it a false Jesus? Is it a false spirit? Is it a false gospel that we're being led to believe? Father, I pray that you continue to walk with us, that you continue to pour out your Spirit upon us in our heart our minds that anoint our eyes with eyes have that we may see the truth, that we may discern the subtleties of Satan. We may see that these are actually attributes of Babylon and not of the kingdom of heaven. I pray, Lord, continue to be with us on this holy Sabbath day and bless us for we need your blessings and we need your truth and we need your love.
continue, Lord, to, to watch after your people. I pray in Jesus' name.